how much Argentina's dirty war dirtied the new pope today, Thursday, March 14th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. The new Pope Francis was a Jesuit leader in Argentina during his country's darkest period, the Dirty War of the 1970s. Today, some Argentines have mixed feelings about his past. Some people will always feel that he should have done more. Others will feel that he did what he could due to the circumstances. Also, what Latinos in California make of a Latin American pope. And later, we sample some of the dishes President Obama could eat on his upcoming trip to the Middle East. Oh, and then there's this, a fish that produces slime and how that slime could be used to make your clothes. When I learned about hagfish slime, there there really was no turning back. Yep, no turning back now. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Pope Francis began his first full day on the job with a simple act. After praying at a church in Rome, he stopped by the hotel where he'd been staying before the conclave to pick up his bags and pay the bill himself. The gesture was in keeping with the new pope's reputation as a simple and modest man, but many around the globe are just starting to learn about his past in his native Argentina, and some uncomfortable questions come up there. Jorge Mario Bergoglio was head of the Jesuit order in Argentina during much of that nation's darkest episode, the so-called Dirty War in the 1970s and early 1980s. That's when the military government fearful of a communist uprising, arrested and murdered tens of thousands of people suspected of leftist sympathies. The Catholic Church has been criticized for its silence during the Dirty War, and Bergoglio in particular for some specific actions. Veronica Smink is an Argentine journalist who reports for the BBC. She's in Buenos Aires. Veronica, let's start with a specific issue. Bergoglio's uh, alleged role in the disappearance of two priests from his own Jesuit order, known for their liberation theology, their work in the slums. What happened to them and what was Bergoglio supposed to have done or not done? Well, these two Jesuits were kidnapped and remained um, in custody of the military for five months and were tortured there. They were then released. But the accusation is that Bergoglio did not protect them as head of the Jesuits. And this came out publicly in 2010 when a journalist published testimonies saying, you know, that Bergoglio had not protected them. Bergoglio himself then answered, replied, you know, to these accusations also in 2010 in an autobiographical book called The Jesuit, in which he said basically that at that time he was a young man, didn't have much contacts. He he lamented not having done more, but said that he did the best he could in those circumstances. Another family went to Bergoglio for help looking for their daughter and her young baby who had been disappeared in that period. Uh, He eventually had to testify as a witness in that case, right? Yes, that's right. He actually also had to uh, testify as a witness in the case of one of the Jesuits, you know, that went to trial. In both cases, only summoned as a witness, not accused of anything formally. And it's interesting to to know that Argentina is currently carrying out hundreds of trials of people, you know, who were involved and are accused of abuses at the time. Having said which, Bergoglio has never, you know, other than having to to present testimony as a witness, he's never been formally accused of anything. Uh, but it is true. 
he also, yes, was called as a witness in a case of kidnapping of children, which was, of course, one of the other things, you know, that was going on at that time. And I gather some activists, uh, as far as these uh, current trials taking place, uh, criticized Bergoglio for not supporting these trials. Well, the the Episcopal Conference, so the meeting of the, the top hierarchy of the church, did come out twice formally apologizing for the general role of the church at the time, saying we should have done more, um, lamenting the specific role of some of their clergymen, and uh, also saying, you know, that they would do their best to support these trials and, and calling for people, you know, who had any evidence to, to come out. But yes, there is a general sense in Argentina that the Catholic Church, if not complicit, um, did not do enough. Why was the church silent on, on the dirty war for the most part? Well, in his book, Bergoglio says, you know, that a lot of things are known now, but back then there was a lot of confusion. You know, there were leftist groups, you know, military groups, guerrillas, attacking civilians even, and there was a lot of chaos going on. And he says, yes, we should have, you know, in retrospect, we should have done more. But Bergoglio says, you know, at the time, uh, we weren't aware of what was happening and we did our best. It's also interesting that um, a Nobel Peace Prize winner, fellow Argentine, Adolfo Perez Esquivel, um, came out to defend Bergoglio yesterday. He, he said, you know, that Bergoglio himself has no links with the military. Um, this is a, a very, you know, important human rights advocate. So I think it's um, it speaks, you know, quite eloquently about Bergoglio's role himself. As a head of the church, you know, perhaps many will feel that he should perhaps be more apologetic. But uh, at that time, he wasn't the head. He was the head of the Jesuits. And uh, I suppose people will always feel, uh, some people will always feel that he should have done more. Others will feel that he did what he could due to the circumstances. How widespread is the anger in Argentina today at the Catholic Church for its silence during the Dirty War? And has any of that dampened the enthusiasm in Argentina for the uh, election of a pope from there? It has it has a bit, yes. I think generally speaking, Argentines, both Catholic and non-Catholic, are just generally very pleased and proud that an Argentine has been selected Pope. You know, the, a lot of them were telling me we already have Lionel Messi, you know, in, in <laughs> soccer. Uh, we have Maradona. Uh, we're about to have a, a queen in Holland, a Maxima of Holland, and now we have a Pope. So a they're Maxima just, you know, of, uh, of Argentine descent? Yes, absolutely. Yes, she's Argentine. Oh, yeah. And uh, so, so they're just bursting with pride. And of course, no one was expecting this. The BBC's Veronica Smink, speaking with us from Buenos Aires. Thank you. Thank you, Marco. One particular group of Argentines who are ecstatic about the new pope are fans of the San Lorenzo soccer team in Buenos Aires. Seems Pope Francis is himself a notorious San Lorenzo fan, and that the club's history echoes the new pontiff's concern for the poor and downtrodden. The world's William Troop is always up on global soccer stories, including this one. How do we know Pope Francis is indeed this, like, fanatic fan of the San Lorenzo team, William. Well, it's pretty simple. The Pope actually is a member of the athletic club that runs the soccer team, and he's uh, member number 88,235. And uh, if you look on the internet, you could find his membership card. So he is a card-carrying fan. Absolutely. And the other reason that we know is that uh, he's, he's officiated masses right at the club, um, one in 2008 in occasion of the 100th anniversary of San Lorenzo Soccer Club. And during that mass, he actually said that in 1946, when he would have been like 10 years old, uh, he didn't miss a single match of that season in which San Lorenzo won the title. So he actually is a longtime fan of this club. Golly, diehard. And as we mentioned, the club's history seems worthy of a Pope support. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, the club was created... uh, in in a couple of steps. First, a a group of kids 
uh, started playing soccer, uh, or so the legend has it, uh, in, in a street in, in Buenos Aires, like literally in a street corner in the middle of cars and, uh, you know, buses coming along. Mm. And a, a young uh, Catholic priest named Lorenzo Massa saw them and said, whoa, 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 this is dangerous. Uh, and apparently one of them had almost gotten run over. And so the priest said, come on into my church compound and I'll give you the field as long as you come to Mass every Sunday. And they struck a deal, and so the club was born. And Father Lorenzo also used this as a way to get uh, young people off the streets of Buenos Aires. So it, it's a very sort of classic story of uh, a priest uh, trying to help uh, the, the young to stay out of trouble. Yeah, a real kind of hardwired link between the, the San Lorenzo team and and the Catholic Church. What, what are the fans of San Lorenzo saying now that they have this fan who's the Pope? Well, there's there's enormous pride, and you know, obviously, I'm not in in uh, Buenos Aires to talk to them directly. But if you look on social media, there's like it's everywhere. They they're they're really proud that this uh, soccer team has the Pope as a fan. And if you look at the messages, they're kind of funny because uh, sometimes the, the the messages say, well, you know, you guys and the other soccer fans, you you guys can say what you want, but you don't have the Pope as a fan. So there. <laughs> William, I don't want to play gotcha with a guest we had on the show previously this week, but I have to play this clip from an interview we did with Catholic studies expert Andrew Chestnut, who was telling us that he thought the front runners in the papal election were a cardinal from Brazil and one from Italy. Let's hear it. So I think we were looking probably at a Brazil versus Italy final, which, of course, could also be a World Cup soccer final as well. So, William, uh, I guess Andrew got the wrong final, didn't he? Yes, he did. And actually, this uh, conclave was exactly like the 1986 World Cup. Italy and Brazil come in the hot favorites, and then Argentina runs away with the title. And, and in fact, the uh, the hero of that 1986 World Cup victory for Argentina uh, is, was Diego Maradona. And he, he tweeted after it became known that uh, Pope Francis was the new pope. And he said, well, uh, the god of soccer is Argentinian, and now so is the pope. <laughs> <laughs> a strange parallel universe indeed. The world's William Troop. Thank you. You're welcome. By the way, you've got to check out what cartoonists around the globe make of Pope Francis. You can see their first impressions, a couple of them soccer-related, at theworld.org. The new pope may be an Argentine local boy, but the election of a Latin American pontiff has sparked celebration all across the region. Of course, many Latin American governments lean to the left these days, and they've clashed with Catholic officials over the church's rejection of gay marriage, abortion, liberation theology. The number one critic was Venezuela's Hugo Chavez, who died last week of cancer. John Otis reports from Caracas. Chavez was a practicing Catholic who promoted liberation theology, which holds that priests should help the poor by working for political and social change. Chavez had no stomach for the conservative Catholic hierarchy in Rome or in Caracas. He viewed Venezuela's Catholic Church as an influential power base that opposed his socialist revolution. And he ridiculed leading Catholic officials, calling them liars, ignorant perverts, and Neanderthals. That's Chavez in a 2010 speech calling Venezuelan Cardinal Jorge Urosa a troglodyte for opposing communism. Catholic leaders struck back. One said that instead of a blessing, Chavez deserved an exorcism. According to diplomatic cables released by WikiLeaks, the Vatican told the U.S. government that it wanted to undermine Chavez because it was losing influence in Venezuela. 
Not surprisingly, Venezuelan state TV has all but ignored the new pope and continues to focus on Chavez's death and legacy. But when government officials do refer to Bergoglio, it's often about his close ties to Argentina's military dictatorship in the 1970s and 80s. One former Chavez official tweeted a photo of Bergoglio giving communion to imprisoned former dictator Jorge Videla. But on the streets of Caracas, it's easy to find people excited over the new papa. Wilmer de los Rios works as a hotel security guard. I was surprised. My girlfriend called me, hey, we have a papa from Argentina. <laughs> I say, wow, okay, it's good. Yeah, I like it. He says many Venezuelans disagree with Chavez about the church. I think that they were very upset about it because we never had a, a government who was against the church. Just like Chavez used to be. But others here could care less about the new pope. At this Caracas church, I meet Xiomara Moya, who is praying before going to work. She's outraged about the church sex abuse scandals. She says past popes did nothing to stop them. And she praises Chavez for taking church officials down a notch. In life, Chavez likely would have scoffed at Bergoglio. But yesterday, Venezuela's interim president, Nicolás Maduro, suggested that, from the great beyond, Chávez helped get the new pope elected. He said, we know that our comandante reached those heights and he's face-to-face with Christ. Something had an influence on the choosing of a South American pope. For The World, I'm John Otis, Caracas. By the way, it looks like the body of Hugo Chavez won't be preserved for perpetuity like Lenin's or Mao's. The government planned to have Chavez embalmed and put on permanent display, but acting President Maduro now says they started the process too late. Still ahead on the world, a girl enslaved in Nepal stands up to her master and gains her freedom on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Okay, just a little more on the new pope from Argentina. A lot of Latino Catholics in the U.S. are giddy about the historic choice, but it comes at a time that the Catholic monopoly over Latin American immigrants is shrinking, just as it is in Latin America, especially with the rise of evangelical churches. The world's Monica Campbell checked in with some Latinos at a Catholic church in San Francisco. For Angelica Vilis, it's revolutionary. Vilis is from Nicaragua, and she figured the next pope would probably be European or African. So when news broke about Jorge Bergoglio, or El Papa Francisco now, she rushed down to her church here. She works to recruit new Catholics in the area, going door to door. You can tell it's not easy when you talk to some young Latinos outside the church. My name is Yvette Corral. Um, I go to Abraham Lincoln, and I'm 16 years old. My name is Armando Corral. I'm 17 years old. Their parents are from Mexico. When I asked Yvette about what motivated her to go to church, she kicked the question over to her brother. I'm not sure. Why is it important, Armando? We're... We're raised like that, and people should <laughs> practice Catholic more, I don't know. They talked about their friends, 
who've left the Catholic Church or joined others. Only a few friends are Catholic, and the rest are Christian. I don't mind. If, if they believe in God, if they're Christian, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. By Christian, he means evangelical. Near the church, there's evangelical and Pentecostal storefront temples. Fluorescent lights advertise in Spanish. Some Catholics tag diehard evangelicals as los aleluyas, or the hallelujahs. But that doesn't bother evangelical converts like Victor Manuel Frias. He says Catholic mass is too stiff, with too much repeating what people say on stage. I don't like that. I mean, that's not cool. I mean, I'm not saying that it's bad because who am I to judge, right? But I like the worship. I like to be able to praise God, raise my hands to him, and just give him a heart, you know? It's awesome. It's an awesome feeling. It's, it's so awesome that it's hard to describe it. You just got to feel it, you know? Clearly, Pope Francis faces plenty of challenges. But yesterday was still time to celebrate. Inside at the Catholic Church, Dolores Contreras from Argentina was overwhelmed. She's the parish cook. She sat in a pew holding a small Argentine flag. She's moved because Pope Francis is from her country. But he also represents Latin America. She says God has given the region a prize. For the world, this is Monica Campbell in San Francisco. Here's a cool notion. Some of the products we use every day in our high-tech world were inspired by nature. The idea for Velcro, for instance, came from the tiny barbs on plant seeds and the shape of Japan's bullet train, inspired by the beak of a kingfisher. Now some Canadian scientists have found a natural material they think could inspire the clothing of the future, and it comes from the ocean floor. Anna Rothschild of our partner program Nova has a story. At the University of Guelph, not far from Toronto, there's a large blue building in the middle of campus. Step inside, and you'll find a room filled with giant fish tanks. So this is the Aqualab. Biologist Tim Weingard walks over to a tank that holds what look like eels. (laughs) He dips a wooden pole in the water. So we just go in and sort of fish one out, essentially. These are hagfish, ancient snake-like creatures that live on the bottom of the ocean. Weingard places one in a bucket and lightly squeezes it. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So there's a pretty uh, impressive volume of slime there. Slime covers his hands. It's a thick mass of clear mucus. Hagfish produce a lot of slime. It serves as a form of defense. You see, hagfish aren't really fish. They're more primitive creatures that have been around for perhaps 500 million years. They don't have jaws, so over time, hagfish found their own way to protect themselves from predators, like sharks. In fact, some scientists recently took video footage of sharks attacking hagfish. Weingard says just as the sharks start to bite, their mouths and gills are covered with slime. Which causes them potentially to suffocate, but definitely to abort the attack. Well, it turns out the slime may have other uses for people. Douglas Fudge heads this research project at the University of Guelph. When I learned about hagfish slime, there there really was no turning back. He says one of the things that makes the slime fascinating is that it's made up of thread-like fibers with useful properties. When you stretch the fibers in water and then dry them out, they take on properties that are are very silk-like. Hagfish fibers are incredibly thin and extremely strong. And that gave Fudge and his colleagues an idea. For years, scientists have been looking for natural alternatives to synthetic fibers like nylon and spandex. 
They're made from oil, which is a non-renewable resource. Hagfish threads, he says, are made from proteins. And proteins are a renewable resource because we can get organisms to make them. No one has made a spool of hagfish thread yet, but Fudge and his team see a future where hagfish slime, or similar proteins, could be turned into high-performance, eco-friendly clothing. The fibers might be used for stockings or breathable athletic wear or even bulletproof vests. Now, they don't plan to harvest slime from hagfish directly. Turns out, it's not easy raising hagfish in captivity. So instead, what they'd like to do is produce these fibers in the lab. These are the right tips. That's what postdoc Atsuko Nagishi has been trying to do. She shows me a glass dish filled with liquid. There's a thin film of hagfish proteins on top. And I'm just taking my tweezers and then kind of drawing it up. As she pulls with the tweezers, it looks like she's pulling the skin off a cup of hot cocoa. The skin collapses, forming a short fiber. She twirls it between her fingers. It's kind of like a little piece of hair. Other members of the team are trying to make threads like these using genetically engineered bacteria, bypassing the hagfish entirely. The scientists are still nowhere near making fabric from these threads, but biologist Tim Weingard is hopeful. With increased interest and increased support uh, and collaboration, it could be something not too far into the future. Before I leave the lab, Weingart offers me the opportunity to experience hagfish slime for myself. He holds up a glob for me to touch. There's a pretty good mass. I cup the slime in my hand. It's cold and heavy and feels like it's laced with fine hairs. It's almost as if you're putting your hand through a spider web. Yeah, like the thickest spider web in history. Yeah. <laughs> and kind of a damp one. One that could suffocate sharks. <laughs> and one that someday might be woven into the very shirt on your back. For Nova and the World, I'm Anna Rothschild, Guelph, Canada. We've got photos of hagfish and their copious slime, and if that's not disgusting enough, how about a creature that eats the tongue right out of a fish's mouth? You know you want to see that. Check out Nova's new gross science video at theworld.org. You're listening to The World on PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI. Today's story, reported in conjunction with NOVA, was made possible by the Candida Fund. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, President Obama heads to the Middle East next week. We'll give him some tips on places to eat while in Jerusalem, but if he visits this local eatery, he better know what he wants. You cannot come and play with the waiters, you know. We have this, 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 and this. And that's what you get. That's it. PRI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Sometimes the media find themselves the focus of the controversy they're covering. Case in point, the dispute over Kenya's recent presidential election. Western news outlets are accused of playing up the potential for ethnic violence. Meanwhile, President-elect Uhuru Kenyatta is forging ahead with efforts to form a new government, and the current government is cracking down on foreign media, ordering international journalists who lack the proper credentials to leave, while others will need special passes. 
Mukoma Wangugi grew up in Kenya and teaches at Cornell University. This is not happening within a vacuum. And one of the ways I reason through this is by thinking of the 1982 coup attempt in Kenya. You know, I was very young then. But one of my earliest memories is us as a family huddled together, actually listening to the BBC. Because at that point, international media was the only way we could get to learn what was happening within our country. And the more the government became repressive, uh, the more we relied on, uh, on, on foreign media. And you think that's so, changed? I think that has changed, you know, looking at how, you know, Kenyans reacted to the recent coverage of the elections. And I think part of it is there was a CNN story that ran where they interviewed five or so people who were out in a, in a forest um, practicing war games. But when you looked at the video, uh, it just, it, it was very, very hard to take it seriously. And this is not to say that violence is not there. Indeed, on election day, about 15 people were killed in Mombasa. So the violence is there. But I think it's been a question of, of how the story is being told. What's wrong with the way the Western media have told that story well, so l- far? L- let me give you an example. When I was young, we were walking with my brother, and we found um, you know, a crowd gathered. Uh, and at the center, there was a man beating his wife because his wife had come, found him in a bar, and asked him for money to send their child to hospital. Now... My brother intervened. And I've been thinking, if a Western reporter was looking at that same scene, what would they take out of it? Would they take out the intervention of my brother, or would they stay with the violence? And for me, I think they would just report on the violence without looking at the agency exercised by my brother. You know, And during the 2007 elections, yes, the violence was happening, but at the same time, within those very same communities, there were organizations of ordinary people who coalesced together, to try and stop the violence. Do you think we're missing the story right now of people stopping the violence? Starting with the presidential debates, uh, with the civil organizations, and so on and so forth, there's been a large push for peace. But I think when you looked at the international media reportage, that large push for peace ends up getting lost or being hidden behind the larger and, I guess, more interesting story of, of violence. And I want to be careful here and say that I'm not saying atrocities are not happening. In fact, one of the most important things in the 1990s in Kenya was the reportage of the repression that was happening. So these stories need to be told. And and Western journalists, I do believe, are in there trying to get these stories out. You know, here, let me give you an example, right? If you think of, uh, of September 11th, you know, and the Twin Towers, you know, for me, the first thing that comes to mind, yes, you know, the people leaping off the buildings, but also the firemen. You know, you cannot think of 911 without thinking of the heroic firemen within that single story. You know, if you're talking about ethnic hatred uh, in the Rift Valley, where is the human element? Why is that somehow not there? And I think a lot of Kenyans uh, reacted to that, have been reacting to that. And in that reaction, then you end up with, uh, with the government taking advantage of it, mm. you know, and threatening international media. Do you think in some strange way that the uh, indictment uh, against Uhuru Kenyatta from the International Criminal Court in some strange way helped him? Uh, yes, it did. It did because now the ICC is being conflated uh, with this Western media, Western governments. Is this just idea of everything from the West now is anti the country? And I think that's a, we are in a very, very dangerous place. And we, meaning journalists, writers, we have a role to play so we don't become this country where you know, where we had nationalistic war, whether it's metaphorical or real, with all outsiders. Mukoma Wangugi, an assistant professor of English at Cornell University, thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me.
If you can provide a girl in a developing country with just a few years of education, you can break the cycle of poverty in a way that reverberates throughout a community. That's the idea that inspires Girl Rising, a new film by director Richard Robbins that tells the stories of nine such girls throughout the world, each facing unique challenges and each story told in a unique way. We wanted to bear down on one story in particular, a girl named Suma who lives in Nepal. Suma grew up as a type of bonded servant called a kamlari. But when you see how the kamlaris are treated, it's hard not to think of another word. That word would be slave. Manjushri Tapa is a Nepalese writer who worked with Suma to tell her story. Manju, thanks for joining us. Um, before we get into Suma's story, tell me about the tradition of kamlaris in Nepal. What's the scale of the problem? The history of the Paru people, which is um, the community that Suma comes from, is inextricably linked up with slavery in some way because in the forming of Nepal as a nation state, they got classified as a slavable group of people. And so people from outside of their community and also people within their community, those who are richer, um, have had a tradition of enslaving both the adults and the children. Now there's been a movement, several waves of movements, I would say, to end this the last big one was um, in 2000 when the adults were declared emancipated mm. by the Nepal government. But even after that, the enslavement of the children persisted. And so Suma is from a family where the parents went through that experience, the grandparents have been through that experience, and her siblings have all gone through that experience. There's a scene uh, in Girl Rising that's both heartbreaking and inspiring. Uh, Suma talks about how she wrote songs to get through the horror and I'd like our listeners to hear an excerpt from that. They made me sleep in the goat shed and wear rags and eat scraps from their dirty plates. I can't really talk about everything that happened to me here, but I will never forget. This is where I began to write songs. Only the songs got me through. <laughs> And Suma here is singing, Thoughtless were my mother and father. They gave birth to a daughter. My brothers go to school to study, while I, unfortunate slave at my master's house. It's a hard life, being beaten every day. Manju, i got to say, uh, the, the music sounds like a distant cousin of the blues. Was singing and writing songs a turning point for Suma? She said that she has been singing, and it's something that just comes to her naturally. From the first time she was enslaved, she was six years old. She worked at the house of three separate masters, and she was always being told to shut up because she was always singing through her chores. And that singing really sort of gave her a kind of a softness in her life that she didn't have otherwise. Well, as we uh, mentioned earlier, Girl Rising really kind of talks about the benefits of even what a few years of education can do for, for girls and young women. And that's kind of the remarkable part of Suma's story. How did things change for her in the end? She eventually met a school teacher who was a lodger in one of her master's houses. And that school teacher pressured the masters to put her in a night class, and she learned how to read and write. And then he enrolled her directly into grade three. And then she took it from there. And by the time she was freed, she was 12 and in grade 5. She is the last one in her family who will go through this experience. So she's in a very unique position. 
So you're saying that there is kind of a, a timeline here where after, say, today, children won't be enslaved anymore in this way? There's a very active movement going on right now in the part of Nepal where the Kamlari practice is still going on to end this practice. So Suma and other women who have been Kamlaris before her are leading this movement and they actually go house to house. You know, it's small villages, so everyone knows how many children live in which house and how many girls there are. And they trace the girls and find out where are they? Are they in school? Are they working for a landlord? And if they're working for a landlord, they actually go to the landlord's house and conduct what they call ambushes. We have come to this house, the house of her master, to say, we know you have a Kamlari working for you. You must set her free. And when you see them, you know, they're, they're very slight young women and from one of the most disempowered communities in Nepal. And they have the strength within them to face down landlords. And in many cases, they were telling me, when the landlords don't cooperate, they actually come back a second time with even more girls. They'll take it to the village elders if they have to. And if that doesn't work, they even go to the police. And Suma's done this too. And one of the young women said to me, you know, even the police listen to us because the law's on our side. So they're full of conviction and really confident about themselves while they do this. Well, Manjushri Tapa, appreciate greatly you're telling us about Suma and what she's been through. Thanks. It's my pleasure, Marco. Manjushri Tapa is a Nepalese writer who worked on the film Girl Rising about the education of nine impoverished girls around the world. We have a pretty amazing excerpt from the film at theworld.org. How have gender roles evolved or not where you live? Tell us about an experience that shaped your views. Go to the World Gender page at theworld.org or tweet with the hashtag WorldGender. President Obama travels to the Middle East next week. He arrives in Israel just ahead of the Passover holiday. And the Jerusalem hotel where he's due to stay has made it clear the menu from the hotel kitchen will be strictly kosher. There are, of course, other places to eat in Jerusalem, kosher and otherwise. The world's Matthew Bell has these recommendations. For a lot of locals, it doesn't get any more Jerusalem than this. Azura is an old-school kosher restaurant tucked between alleyways in West Jerusalem's giant fresh food market. The place was opened in the early 1950s by a Jewish immigrant from Turkey named Ezra Schreffler. His son Moshe, who runs the place now, gives me a tour of the kitchen and talks about what makes the food special. It's reflect the real Jerusalem and the old Jerusalem. Like people like to cook many years ago, from Jews that came mostly from the Middle East. If President Obama can break free to grab a quick meal, this place might be on his list already. Schreffler says Rahm Emanuel booked Azura a few years ago. The then White House chief of staff was in Israel for his son's bar mitzvah. So if the president does by chance decide to stop by, what would be the first dish you would serve him? To start with, probably the kube soup, which is dumplings stuffed in meat. It's spicy, right, but it's, it's not hot. It's not, it's not that kind of spicy. Of course, not spicy as like a Mexican food that you cannot put in your mouth. It's spicy that you can eat and enjoy. So after the kube soup, what comes next? For the main dish, I would bring to Barack Obama an oxtail. 
A what? Oxtail. Oxtail. Yeah, which is the best thing we have in here. And I'm going to have to agree. Treffler says Israelis do like their stomachs. They want their food cooked right, and that means slow. But when it comes to dining, it's often very chick-chock, as people say here. We write down the business. You cannot come and play with the waiters, you know. We have this, 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 and this, and that's what you get. That's it. If President Obama wants to go for the full foodie experience in Jerusalem, he might want to reconsider his pledge to keep kosher and come here. So this is red tuna with some pomegranate seeds, yogurt, coriander, and parsley, and uh, cucumber and wasabi sorbet. This side is, uh, well, it's what we, the cooks, like to eat, so it's deep-fried squid. Uri Navon and his partners run Machne Yuda, one of Jerusalem's hippest places to eat. And squid, as the president may or may not know, is not kosher. Chef Asaf Granit says spring is a great time for the American president to be eating in the Holy Land. And if Mr. Obama does show up, Granit says, he should start dinner with some arak, that's anise-flavored booze, and then go with the flow by ordering the tasting menu. 90% of our customers don't use the menu and they say to the waist, just tell the kitchen to do whatever. And then uh, one of the chefs would go up to the table and say, are you, are you guys okay with everything? Are there any allergies? No? Okay, so we'll start and then just say stop. Most of the time we succeed making people happy. President Obama plans to meet the Palestinian president in Ramallah in the West Bank, but he would not have to venture very far from his Jerusalem hotel to find plenty of Palestinian food. In addition to its holy sites, the old city has lots of quality street food, hummus, falafel, olives, dates, and Arabic sweets, and this little gem that specializes in stuffed pigeon. This place has an interesting history. The restaurant is called Costa. I'm now in the kitchen with Farid, who runs the place. Uh, Farid, your specialty is stuffed pigeon. Where does this recipe come from? I learned it from Costa himself. Greek cuisine is similar to Arab cuisine, he says. There's moussaka, tripe, stuffed grape leaves, and most important, lots of olive oil. Harubi's stuffed pigeons are young birds, he says, that have never flown. Just enjoying the stuffed pigeon here, and I have to say it is lovely. It's, it's, not, it's not gourmet, it's not presented in, in a fancy way at all. But it's, it's really a very nice flavor with the, the rice has meat and slivered almonds in it. Maybe the lesson if, if Barack Obama wanted to come and have a pigeon here, uh, this is a lesson in, in eating slowly. You have to take apart bone by bone and then be really patient. Farid, the chef, just encouraged me slowly, slowly. He said, take your time and enjoy it. He also said that I have to use my fingers, no using the, the fork and the knife. That's, that's really the way to do it. For the world, I'm Matthew Bell at the Costa Restaurant in the Old City of Jerusalem. Just ahead on the world, one happy mother in Quebec on PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Online weddings don't sound very romantic, do they? But for some reason, more and more couples are tying the knot via Internet with partners who happen to be on opposite sides of the globe. The idea of proxy marriage isn't all that new, though. It goes back at least to the 18th century when a certain archduchess in Austria got hitched to a future king of France. The couple hadn't yet met face to face. 
So name this Habsburg Archduchess who became the Queen of France and who eventually lost her head. Then you'll have solved today's geo quiz. For now, let's turn to New York Times reporter Sarah Maslin-Near. She was recently on hand for an internet proxy marriage. Well, I walked into a mosque in Jackson Heights, Queens, and there was a young woman there named Poonam Chowdhury. And Poonam was decked out like any Bangladeshi-born bride would be in a beautiful red silk veil with gold-encrusted embroidery, makeup. She's done up to the nines. But she was the only member of the couple there because her beloved was on a computer screen on a tiny laptop, similarly decked out, but he was all the way in Bangladesh, a man named Tanvir. Right. And so in this case, what was their reason for their inability to get together for this big day? Well, they had met five years ago in passing. And then they, like many couples, started an online courtship that lasted all those years. She even had him on her phone as my baby. So it was a very loving, legitimate relationship to them. But he's many thousands of miles away in Bangladesh. And he's not an American citizen. She is. So that'll open the inroads of him becoming a citizen. All couples uh, who are married, you can apply for citizenship of your spouse. Right. It sets up the possibility as much as if he were here in the United States marrying this woman in Queens. Exactly. And that actually has raised some concern with immigration experts in that because of the simplicity and ease of this process, marriage fraud is always possible in every type of marriage. And so what was really interesting is I called several immigration authorities, Homeland Security, and I said, how do you feel about proxy marriage? And they said, What? And that was really startling. (laughs) What does that suggest? That they've never heard about it or that they don't consider it part of their remit? Well, actually, they ask quite a few questions about marriages when a person applies for citizenship. And they ask, what was your wedding like? Please describe it. But they don't specifically ask, was it conducted by proxy? And yet, while immigration officials said to me, it would raise a red flag if we knew this because it's just sort of out there, they don't even ask the question uh, whether or not it occurred. We actually covered a, a wedding that was conducted on Skype a couple of years ago on the bride who was unable to make it to the wedding in Colorado. She's from China and didn't have the visa to get over. So that that problem seems to come up a lot. But are there people who get married, you know, virtually online because they want to? You know, I hadn't found anyone who f- this was an uh, exciting choice. You know, no <laughs> yeah. techie doing this just because it was cool. Uh, really, this was a way for bringing star-crossed lovers together, uh, like this woman in China you describe. I should point out that it's available in a handful of American states. Colorado is one of them. Um, but most of them, actually, with the exception of Colorado, you have to be a member of the military. And this is where proxy marriage traces its roots, because it was used with members of the military who were concerned they might be killed abroad and then leave a loved one behind uh, without benefits or, or the rights accorded to a spouse. But it traces its lineage back even further to actually a, a sort of prominent and fascinating point in history, which is Marie Antoinette uh, was married to Louis XVI this way. She was actually married, I believed to her brother as his proxy in her native Austria, and then shipped to go meet her husband in France. Wow. Can divorces be arranged this way, too? Oh, I didn't think that. And, and I, yeah. that makes Sorry. me sad thinking for Poonam Chowdhury and Tanvir. They were so <laughs> in love. At the end, he, he reached out over the Skype, and I said, Tanvir, does, does this feel weird to you? You know, does this, this doesn't feel legit, does it? And he said, this is my lawful wife. And <laughs> Poonam screamed with joy. You Fantastic. know, it, it was really real for them. So I have to ask you, when it was time to officially kiss the bride, what happened? 
Well, it was a Muslim wedding, so there was no kissing. I see. Um, okay. But they did feed each other little pieces of wedding cake to their computer cameras with each other's forks. <laughs> Who wiped off the computer screen? <laughs> Get a little some of that uh, buttercream The unlucky bridesmaid. Sarah Maslin-Nier, a reporter with The New York Times. Thank you very much. Sure. My pleasure. Hopefully you caught the answer to our geo-quiz about a minute ago. It's Marie Antoinette who wed the future Louis XVI by proxy back in the 18th century. Our texting quiz winners today knew it all along. They are Chris in Manhattan, Stephanie in Falmouth, Massachusetts, and Mary Alice in Orchard Lake, Michigan. To play along next time, by proxy or not, text GEOQUIZ, one word, to 69866. Okay, so we started our program today with the Pope from Argentina, and we'll end it with the Pope as well, kind of. A Pope almost ran. I spotted this in Canada's Globe and Mail newspaper. Cardinal Marc Ouellette of Lamotte, Quebec, was considered a papal frontrunner. As the paper says, he was a puff of smoke away from becoming the most famous Canadian to ever walk the earth. Well, the Cardinal's 91-year-old mother is overjoyed he didn't get picked. I get to keep my son, she told the Globe and Mail. Other residents of Lamont, Quebec, were apparently a bit disappointed their cardinal wasn't elected, yet many also say they're relieved. Maybe that's schadenfreude, but the quiet town of 450 probably would have been besieged by pilgrims if Cardinal Ouellette had been elected. Now, let me triangulate from Lamont to the Vatican and back to Argentina with a musician from Quebec who's recorded on the hipster Buenos Aires label Zizek Records. His name is Bugat. We hear the new Pope Francis is a fan of Argentina's best-known style of music, the tango. What we just heard is not tango, and if Pope Francis is aiming to reach out to younger members of his flock, we strongly recommend he check out some of the newer music coming out of his home city. Try Bugat, for starters. Even though he's from Quebec, he's been a hot number on the electro-Latino circuit, and Bugat sounds from the Buenos Aires barrios are packing dance floors in North and South America. And his latest CD, El Dorado Sunset, plays around with cumbia, which is better associated with Colombia. But cumbia has long been huge in Argentina, too. And it's the main currency of Zizek Records in Buenos Aires, and right now, of Bugat. New Electro Cumbia from Bugat will leave you with another track from his new CD, El Dorado Sunset. This one's simply called Wow. Yeah. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, that's our program today. I tweet at Marco Werman, and when we're not on your radio, you'll find us at theworld.org. Thank you for listening. Super shiny, como bling bling, acá lo es todo, como el timing, marcando el compás al milímetro que la...
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. By the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.